Our reading will be Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. While you're finding that, I'll just remind you that uh, we have been following the early life of Jesus. Last week we read of his temptation and his defeat of the temptations of the evil one in the desert. And now Jesus really begins his public ministry. Let's attend now together to the reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We've been in Luke's gospel since... uh, the beginning of Advent, and it's been building for a while. There's been expectation and anticipation in the announcement of Jesus' birth and the miraculous nature of his birth. Things have been said about Jesus by angels, by prophets and God-seekers like Simeon and Anna. His priestly knowledge has been on display in the temple, even as a young man. John has said amazing things about him, even as he offered him baptism, at which time the heavens opened and a voice said, this is my beloved son. Last week we looked at a showdown in the desert where Jesus showed his power and his might to resist the great attacker of God's people. Even as we start this passage, the first two verses, 14 and 15, are a little bit vague. Jesus goes in the power of the Spirit. He's going around preaching and teaching, and people are amazed. But what's his ministry? 
What's he saying? What's he proclaiming? Now in verse 16, Jesus comes to his hometown. The place where he grew up. He goes into the synagogue as was his custom when he grew up there as a pious young man raised by a godly father and mother. And in most in all likelihood, this is the very synagogue in which he grew up. This is like coming back to his home church. And all eyes are upon him. He reads Isaiah 61, and the passage records for us all the eyes of the people in the synagogue were fixed on him. Probably not just because they're good, pious sermon listeners, but because they want to know. We've been hearing things about Jesus. He's been preaching and doing pretty amazing things around Galilee. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? What's going to happen? But as we've just read, and as we'll explore more in a few minutes, there are other questions they should have been asking. Not just what is Jesus saying, but are we ready to hear it? Will we listen to what Jesus has to say. So let me pray for us this morning that we would listen to what God's word has to say. Gracious God, we come. We've heard your word read aloud. We are blessed to have this gift, this record of the ministry of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Would you work through your spirit-provided word to work in us now? Would we listen and respond in a way pleasing to you? In Jesus' name, amen. What we see in this passage, as all the eyes of the synagogue are upon Jesus, is his pronouncement that he has come preaching good news to those who believe, which he will accomplish. Jesus has read Isaiah 61 and he says, Today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. And the effect of what he is saying and what this passage shows us this morning is that Jesus comes preaching good news to those that will listen. And he will accomplish that good news. This morning as I unpack that, I want us to look at what is the good news that Jesus is preaching? What is Jesus saying? by virtue of this message as he opens up uh, his public ministry. Who is the good news for? Who is the audience for this good news? And lastly, what is the truth of this good news? First, what good news is Jesus preaching? Here's the thing, we don't, we don't know. <laughs> the sermon's not recorded for us. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? All this buildup, and, and Jesus preaches a sermon. We know he preaches a sermon and Luke doesn't record the sermon for us. It doesn't mean we don't know what he's saying. Rather, because Jesus is such a gifted communicator that his opening lines, it just says, you'll note that Jesus began, and this would indicate that Jesus goes on from here to say more, but what he says gives them an understanding of all that he's saying. I learned just this week that one of the gifts of a good communicator is to use the bluff technique. Bottom line, up front. Bottom line, up front, what Jesus says is, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The rest of what he'll say is the unpacking of that. But, but what does that mean? 
First of all, Jesus is the anointed prophet. And the promises of Isaiah 61 are coming to fulfillment. So the first aspect is Jesus is the anointed prophet. Notice Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is pointing to himself and saying, The Spirit of God that you have heard working in me is not just so that I can do amazing things, it is an indicator of my office. It is a sign of my role. While the overtones of baptism, where Jesus is anointed by that baptism, is kingly, in one sense, since he then goes on to defeat the enemy of God's people, the devil, in the showdown in their desert, we know his priestly ability to know God's law, and he's already manifested that as a young man. Jesus now points to his prophetic role to proclaim God's word to God's people. Jesus goes on to preach this with gracious words. We might translate that with um, graceful or attractive or beautiful. It marks his prophetic office. Jesus is saying amazing, profound things, and he is claiming that this particular message spoken through the prophet Isaiah of one upon whom the Spirit is for the purpose of proclaiming good news is him. Jesus is not just a prophet. He is the prophet appointed to proclaim the arrival of what Isaiah 61 is talking about, which is restoration. What is the message of Isaiah 61 that he's saying is being fulfilled as he proclaims it to them? We have just a few verses here, and I'm going to read a longer section from Isaiah 61 because most of us are not as biblically literate as they would have been because the context, which Jesus might have read the whole context, and even if he didn't, it would have been in their minds. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the plantings of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat of the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. On first blush, we hear just 
good news of social situations, right? We, we may read Isaiah 61 as, as Jesus quotes it there, and we say, okay, poor people get more money. People in jail get out of jail or visited in jail. Those who are oppressed find justice. Those who are blind are healed. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Jesus and, and Isaiah are not saying those things. But in the announcement of those things, they are pointing to the promise of restoration. See, all of these things are things that God's people experienced because they were sent into exile. The people were poor and afflicted because they were taken out of their home and had to start over financially in a place that wasn't their home. There are captives, and the word for captives there, these are captives from war. These are the people that have been dragged off into captivity to serve the, their, their, uh, their foreign oppressors. Even the recovery of the sight of the blind, we know that the Babylonians on occasion would blind kings. They would do evil things in front of them and then blind them, and that's recorded in the Old Testament even, so that the last thing they saw was this great act of evil. God's people had sinned, been sent into exile, and God promised restoration. And for those listening to Jesus in that synagogue that Saturday, they would have known that God's people came back. But they hadn't experienced the full return, the full restoration. They were still suffering. Jesus is pronouncing the fulfillment of restoration, the end of exile. But all those things point to something greater. Not just that they're back to their homeland. Not just that there's economic opportunity. Not just that there is a lack of an oppressive regime. Not just that the wounds are healing. But all those things point to the removal of reproach. To the forgiveness of God. The reason God's people were in captivity was because they had sinned and rebelled against God. And God who had said, I'm your covenant God forever. I love you. I will redeem you. I will restore you. In bringing people back is proclaiming the removal of their reproach. We saw this in the larger context of Isaiah 61. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. I will remove from you your headdress of ashes and instead display you in gladness. God is saying, what you deserve for your sins I have removed. Jesus here is preparing the people in his preaching to see that he has come to proclaim the removal of the reproach of sin so that God's people could be restored. So what is Jesus preaching? On one hand, the good news is not what we have come to call the social gospel. Where the good news is merely the fixing of what's wrong in the social order. Is there economic oppression and unfair economic practices? We'll, we'll fix that. Is there unjust labor practices? We want to work to fix that. Is there poverty? Is there homelessness? And this understanding of the social gospel is that the good news of the church 
is the removal of the types of things declared in Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes here in 4, where people believe that the mission of the church is just to remove all of the consequences of sin, all of the injustices that result from sin. We know this isn't the ministry of Jesus because this spirit of power that is upon Jesus to do all these things, he doesn't then go do. Jesus doesn't use his mighty power to throw off the oppressive Roman regime. Jesus doesn't go to all of the leper encampments and to all of those who are begging and heal all the people. He does a lot of that. He heals people. He cares for the poor. But it's to show them a sign of what he is doing, which is the removal of the reproach of sin, the conquering of sin that led to all of the injustice. The problem with the social gospel is it quickly excludes Jesus as necessary because the hope is purely in the removal of the bad social consequences of sin. But nor is Jesus proclaiming a disembodied or a purely spiritual gospel. He does not proclaim the forgiveness of sins, the removal of the reproach of the sins of God's people without the restoration of justice and righteousness. This is probably more where our family of the broader church struggles where we know the heart of the gospel is that Jesus comes to proclaim good news for the removal of our sins, but forget that the goodness of that news transforms us to demonstrate Christ in removing the consequences of sin and caring for those who are under that burden. So while those who live by the social gospel quickly exclude the necessity of Jesus, those who over-spiritualize it often don't act like Jesus. Jesus comes proclaiming the removal of the reproach of sin, the forgiveness so that people can be restored to the full enjoyment of the blessing of God. For the Old Testament people of God, they could go back to the covenant blessing of the promised land. Jesus points to something grander, to the restoration of all that would trust in him to right relationship with God and the restoration of justice for all the earth. It's an amazing message. It's profound good news. So how is it that this proclamation that sounds so beautiful and gracious in a few moments leads to an interchange which causes the people to want to throw Jesus off a cliff? How does it go for from your, the reproach of your sins has been removed? I am here to proclaim restoration, the removal of the consequences of your sin to, we want to kill you. We answer that question by considering who the good news is for. The good news is for those who understand they need it. As they are responding to the graciousness and the beauty of Jesus' words, some skepticism begins to creep in. They say, is this Jesus? Is this not Joseph's son? And in there we begin to think, isn't this the guy that grew up among us? Who does Jesus think he is? Just as an aside, this is one of those situations in which we need to consider that we are called to evaluate the credibility of the message before we consider the credibility of the messenger. That is, so very often we are quick to dismiss truth 
or important messages because we don't like the package in which it comes. But what reason do they have to deny Jesus? They don't have a sinful background. They don't have a great scandal. He hasn't done anything to hurt them. It's just his humble background. If we believe the gospel, if we live according to the truth, we will receive it from those that we don't like and aren't like us because we know that we need it. Here is the thing, though, that Jesus does to engage their skepticism. He moves to reveal their heart, and in so doing, the authority and prophetic knowledge is on display. He says, this is what you're going to say. And in revealing to them what he knows they're going to say, what is in their hearts when he says that you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. And we want to see the types of things that you're going to do in Capernaum. Jesus is right at that moment, even as they are doubting him, displaying his prophetic call because he knows their hearts. But then what is revealed when he actually does that? First of all, their desire for him to prove himself. Jesus says, no doubt you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. That is, if a doctor has the ability to heal others, we want to see that demonstrated in his ability to take good care of himself, right? You know, if you go to a mechanic shop, you take your car, you want it fixed up, and you see them driving an absolute junker, you might question, well, what good is their capability to fix a car? What good is it? For Jesus to proclaim that he has power, that he has authority, if he doesn't demonstrate it here. He goes on to explain that. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Basically, prove it. You say the Spirit is upon you. You say these great amazing things are going to happen. Prove it. Now, on one hand, we can understand a desire for verification. Jesus is saying something amazing. But it seems that they will not entertain the message until there is proof. They won't risk it, which speaks of whether or not they really want to hear it or they're looking for an excuse not to. Consider what, what happens when a family has a family member go missing. That they will often, if they have the capacity, they will offer a reward, right? They'll say, you know, $5,000, $10,000 for, for any information that leads to the recovery or the finding of this person. Now, now, here's the problem. As soon as you start putting money and the offering of money out there to get information, what's likely to happen? Misinformation, right? Crackpots, you know, those who want your money coming out. And yet, the people who are desperate to find that missing loved one, will risk being misled, will risk being taken advantage of because they so desire the information that will lead to the recovery of their lost one. That's not what's on display here. They are absolutely unwilling to acknowledge how deep their need is, revealing that their desire probably is not in the right place because they want to start with absolute proof. We see that in the way that they want miracles. Now, in the New Testament, the word for miracle, almost in all situations, is the word sign. Because the purpose of a miracle is to point to something else. It's not just for the display of power. Look, I have power. Look, magic. Ooh. 
The purpose is to affirm the prophetic office of the person and the truth of what they are saying. The miracles of Jesus accompany his preaching, attesting to who he is and the message he proclaims. But if there is not interest in the message, what good is the sign? If they don't care for the things signified, what good is the miracle? We see this in John chapter 9, where a blind man is healed. And for whatever holy men and wise men and sages and magicians existed in the world at that time, who did signs of healing, things that astounded people, there was no other record of anyone successfully healing a person that was blind. And how did the Jews respond? The most amazing thing ever recorded in their lifetime and the lifetimes before with skepticism, with unwillingness to believe. Instead, they reviled the man whom Jesus had healed. The issue is not just skepticism in and of itself, but what their skepticism, what their cynicism masks, a reliance on self, an unwillingness to trust and believe, a looking to self and a denying of their own need. Unbelief follows hard upon pride that does not see its own need. This is why Jesus will not do the signs that the people want, because they're not interested in the message. They're not interested in the God who is proclaiming the good news. They don't recognize their own spiritual state. This is what Jesus exposes as he goes on to talk about Elijah and Elisha. He talks about the fact that when these prophets, who exhibited profound power and authority in their own prophetic ministries, went through the land of Israel, that these profound gifts of his caring for this widow by Elijah the healing of Naaman by Elisha, this was done to outsiders. Israel was in a profound state of disobedience and idolatry at this time. And because they were unwilling to heed the message of the prophets, God sent the prophets to those that would. Even Naaman, an enemy of God's people. As Jesus points us out, he's pointing out their own spiritual state. If you will not listen to me, if you will not heed my message, then you will not receive the signs of my message and I will go elsewhere. This is why they seek to put him to death. It's not the bare act of his prophetic proclamations, but that it comes against them. It exposes them. This is why a prophet is without honor in their hometown, because it feels like betrayal to be exposed to have your own weakness, the family secrets put on display. They don't want restoration. They don't want to deal with their sins. What they want is reassurance that they're okay. Israel's struggle is writ large in Nazareth's response. They long for restoration from exile. They long for a king. They want a Messiah to kick out the Romans but they're unwilling to come to terms with the sin that led them into the oppression and the exile in the first place. We miss out on the goodness of the good news when we don't acknowledge our need of it. Is the receipt of $1,000 good news to a millionaire, or at least the one that perceives themselves as such? No, because they believe they have themselves more than enough. 
But to the person who is poor, who is paycheck to paycheck, that sounds like a great gift. So much of the struggle with the gospel, I would say, in our society today is that people don't believe that they have a need of anything. There's so much power, so much technology, so much money. Yes, there is so much suffering. I don't want to deny that. But when we look at the rest of the world and we look at history, people, particularly in our context, are profoundly wealthy, profoundly successful, profoundly healthy. And if we don't have a perception of our need, then why would we want to hear good news? And why would we want to hear that we actually do need something? But this isn't just for the original proclamation of the gospel and original faith. This can happen within the church. We come to church because we want to feel good. We want to have community. We want to experience forgiveness. We want to enjoy fellowship. We want to talk about our meaning and purpose. But we often want it without being confronted over our need. Our sins, our idols, our anger the need to share more deeply. We want to be forgiven without acknowledging our sins. We want fellowship without confronting what divides us. We want joy without confronting the painful. We need to know our need before we can receive the good news. And the second implication of what we see about Jesus' ministry is that when we share good news, the good news that Jesus has given us to share to others, we should expect resistance. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. That many of you, as you share good news, will find resistance. And perhaps you've experienced it. Sometimes it's your spouse or your own children whom you most desperately want to hear the good news that are most resistant. It happened to Jesus. But don't give up. Because if that is true for you, that is true for others sharing the good news, and it might come not from you in your hometown or in your own family or own community, but from someone whom God sends. Don't give up. Consider what happens next. The good news is true. The mob is enraged. And instead of special treatment, they are called out with particular insight. The faithful wounds of someone in their own circle feel like an attack. And so they likely say to themselves, well, he's a false prophet. He's claiming to be a prophet. He's not doing any miracles or signs. Can you hear what he's saying? And so in a rage, they seek to kill him. They seek to kill him even though under Roman occupation, they don't have the authority to enact capital punishment. And yet they will risk the ire of the Romans to put Jesus to death. So angry, so enraged are they in response to this that the crowd leads him, pushes him, towards this hilltop so that they can throw him off and stone him. Notice verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Don't miss that while the people are clamoring for a sign, they're clamoring for a miracle, one happens right in front of their face. That this man they think is just a man, this upstart, this guy taking on airs, who they seek to put to death, slips through the grasp of a mob. And don't just miss the, the miracle, don't miss the mercy. 
Notice how that power is displayed. He doesn't call fire and brimstone down to destroy them. He doesn't call a host of the heavenly angels to come with flaming swords to destroy them. He merely says, you do not have power over me and passes through their midst, thwarting their plans. Their blindness and their lack of faith doesn't prevent God from acting in Jesus according to the power of the Spirit. They can't prevent Jesus from accomplishing his will. All their blindness does is keep them blind when it's displayed. Even at this moment, they should have responded. They could have responded with the awe and the glorification that the rest of Galilee was offering. But they didn't. And while this is sad news for the inhabitants of Nazareth, it points to good news for us. This is the good news that Jesus has, does, and will accomplish the good news he proclaims. Briefly, in that the enemies set against Jesus will not be victorious. They oppose Jesus. They want to put him to death. But just as the devil could not defeat him in the desert, an angry mob could not overpower him to defeat his purpose of proclaiming this good news. The second thing that confirms the good news is true is that unbelief will not change the truth. The fact that they didn't believe doesn't change who Jesus is. The fact that they were unwilling to see it does not change the reality of what he was coming to accomplish. That when we live surrounded by unbelief, we may be tempted to ask, are we crazy? Can this be true if so many people doubt it? Can this be true when the world seems to be going nuts around me? But the unbelief doesn't change the truth. Jesus demonstrates it when he walks through their midst. And lastly, believers waiting will see the fruit. Jesus' miracles were of the message that he came to proclaim. Jesus came to restore Israel, yes, but as part of his restoration of the whole world. And so the afflicted poor, the oppressed, the suffering, they do continue to exist. And often as Christians, we follow Jesus. We enter into those places and situations where there are poor, afflicted, and suffering in captivity. But as we enter into those situations, we remember Jesus is who he says he is, that he does what he says he will, that we can trust as we wait the final accomplishment just as Jesus passes through the crowd that seeks to put him to death, just as he passes out of the grave when the evil one and the Romans and the Jews thought that they had won. Jesus will accomplish the good news he proclaims. What part of the good news do you need to hear this morning? That what is wrong can be made right? That the hope for that is Jesus, not in political power or social agenda or an economic system? That better than physical, social, economic restoration is what undergirds that restoration, forgiveness? Do you hear, need to hear why the good news is good, that apart from Jesus, you can't save yourself, but he has chosen in love to save you and die for your sins? Are you tired or fearful? Proclaiming and offering good works that point to that good news? Are you fearful? Jesus walked out of death 
the ultimate sign of our alienation from God. The good news is true. Are you listening? Will you share it? Let's pray. Lord, the depths of your word resist the ability for us to plumb them. But we thank you for what your spirit has given us in this time of study together. Would you continue to have your way with us according to your word as the spirit works, we pray. Amen.